Let me just, let me just say this. I, I'm not really into New Year's resolutions, although I think I might have to this year because last week, for the first time in years, I had to go up a notch on my belt. So, oh, that's a humbling experience right there. Uh, I realized really quickly that I'm not getting any younger and my waistline's not getting any slimmer. So, I foresee clean eating, my wife's going, uh-huh. So I see, foresee a, a healthy eating diet and exercise in, in my near future, probably less fast food. So, uh, that's what I have in store for 2018, but I love New Year's because of what it represents. New Year's represents turning over a new leaf, kind of new beginnings. It's fresh start, clean slate. And so we get to look back on the previous year and how awesome it is that we get to worship Jesus today on the last day of 2017, right? That's awesome. So, yeah, you can clap for that if you want. (laughs) So we get to look back on 2017 and see all the things God has done both in our church, and and God has done incredible things at Bethel Church in 2017. We've seen a pretty drastic increase in attendance. We saw a number of people, a large number of people get saved and baptized. Okay, that definitely deserves an amen. Okay. Yeah, that's that's all praise to God. Uh, We've seen new ministries started. We have new leadership, both staff and volunteer. We just saw God do some incredible things. It's been a banner year in 2017 for Bethel. It's been a banner year for 2017 for the Bryants as well. So last time I was here preaching, I think it was in July, and I told you then that we were looking for a house. Well, we are first-time homeowners as of early September, so that's exciting. And then like two or three weeks after we got a house, we had a baby. (laughs) I think I told you, in fact, Sky was here. She was pregnant, and she's not pregnant now because we have the baby uh, in fact, I don't get to do this at Crown Point. Can I see the baby? Get ready to go, Oh. <laughs> so this, I feel like doing the Lion King thing. Ah! So, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so this is Penelope Ann Bryant, or Penny Ann, and uh, she turned three months on Christmas, and uh, I better put it down or you guys aren't going to listen to me. So uh, she's a little bundle of joy, and... What's incredible is she is already sleeping through the night. I don't know, I don't know how you define a miracle, but that's pretty close right there. And uh, so she is just, uh, we, we love her. She's already sleeping better than her older sister, Genevieve, who's three. And so, uh, so mommy and daddy are very happy. <laughs> um, so we had a new baby, uh, new house, new place to live. We moved January 2nd, the day after New Year's this year, so... New place to live, new job, new church, new friends, a lot of newness in 2017. And so we kind of, as a family and in the ministries I lead, did a lot of foundation laying. And I'm looking forward to 2018 when we get to build on those foundations and see the fruit of of these things. So New Year's represents a fresh start. What would you like to see happen in 2018? You don't have to say this. This is kind of a rhetorical question. You don't need to say anything out loud. But what would you like to see happen in 2018? Maybe in your own life, maybe in your family, maybe in the church, maybe in our country, in our world. What would you like to see happen in 2018? I can't speak for you. I don't know what what you would like to see. I can tell you what I want to see through Bethel Church and and the ministries at Bethel. I want to see many, many people get saved by Jesus. Amen? I, I want to see folks at Bethel through their personal witness and testimony and personal discipleship of those who don't know Christ leading 
hundreds, dare I say thousands in Northwest Indiana to Christ through the gospel-saving truth of Jesus. Man, yeah. Can I, can I get a, if you, if you want to see that in 2018, can I see it get a resounding amen? And I believe God has incredible things in store for us in the new year. So I am praying, Lord, bring revival in your church and bring spiritual awakening in, in, in this region that needs you so badly. So we, we look forward to what the Lord has for us. And this is really why I'm preaching the passage I'm preaching today, which is Matthew chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at specifically verse 35 through 38. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose. If you were to go to the Crown Point campus right now, to the student center, and you walk in on the right-hand side of the game room, and they're painted in big, bold letters, it says, if you have a pulse, you have a purpose. Our student ministry director, Mike Wittig, says that all the time. And I love it, because how true it is, as long as you have breath in your lungs and blood is beating in your veins, God can use you. There's a reason for your existence. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose. But as humans, it's kind of within our human nature, we are really good at giving excuses, right? Lord, I know, yeah, but I'm too fill in the blank. I'm too tired. I'm too weak. I'm too scared. I'm too uninformed. I'm too unqualified, too young, too old, too busy, too timid, too doubtful, too fearful, too apprehensive, whatever, whatever the case may be. And many great men and women gave excuses in Scripture when God called them to do something. We think of Abraham, Moses, Rahab, uh, Gideon, Esther, Mary, Paul. And yet God used them in powerful ways because the Lord does not make room for excuses when he wants to enact his will and his plan. And the great commission that we see in Matthew chapter 28, which is Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go and make disciples. As you are going, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Nothing in the Great Commission is conditional. Nowhere does Jesus say, you know, if you feel like it, if it's convenient for you, when you're comfortable, if you would like to make disciples, that'd be all right. No. There are no yeah buts to the Great Commission. And yet God uses us. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose. And so what is our purpose? Well, our purpose is this, and this is the main idea this morning. Our purpose is to know Jesus and help others do the same. So, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 35. And Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus spent most of his ministry in an area of Israel called Galilee. Galilee was kind of northern Israel, and it is lush, it is beautiful, mountainous, and yet those who lived in southern Israel, that is Judea, and the city Jerusalem, they didn't have the best view of Galileans. Galilee was 
mostly comprised of rural communities. So you had farmers, you had fishermen, you had trade workers, mostly blue-collar type. And so Judeans saw Galileans as, to be honest, backwoods country bumpkins. It might be how some in the north might view those in the deep south or in the Appalachians. My wife is from, from Tennessee, so she is a southern gal through and through, and yet I would never say she's a country bumpkin, mostly because I would be sleeping on the couch. But she's not, <laughs> she's, you know, she's not uneducated. She's, that's not true. That's a, that's a terrible stereotype. Now, she will say y'all from time to time, and I think it's the cutest thing in the world, and her dad will use euphemisms like full as a tick on a bloodhound or knee-high to a duck. I don't know what they mean, but they sound fun. And yet, that's the stereotype is, oh, you know, in the Appalachians, they're, they're uneducated. Well, that's not true. It's an unfair, unflattering, ignorant stereotype, and yet it is a stereotype. And the Judeans had an unfair, ignorant stereotype of Galileans, but it was a stereotype. This is partly why they would find out Jesus was from Nazareth, and they would go, wait, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet, it does not surprise me one bit that this is where our Messiah spent so much time in ministry. Jesus loved loving the unlovable. Prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, the sick, the poor, the needy, the hungry, the homeless, outcasts. I, I mainly work out of the Crown Point campus for Bethel, and right next to my office is Pastor Chris Whetstone, who is our small groups pastor. And a few months ago, he and I were talking, and he, as we were talking, he threw out this word, I don't remember what it was, but it was like one of those $5 fancy words, like, whoa. <laughs> and so I asked him what that meant, I had to look it up, because what in the world does that mean? And ever since then, every week we come up with a word of the week together, I know it's corny, it's improving our vocab, so bear with me. Well, the last week, I was reading through a book, and I came across a word. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. And it's the word insular. I-N-S-U-L-A-R, insular. And I had seen it before, but I didn't know what it meant. Insular, after I looked at what it meant, is not something that Christians should ever be known for. Insular means ignorant of or uninterested in cultures, ideas, or peoples outside of one's own experience. Essentially, when you are insular, you are in your bubble, and you don't ever get outside your bubble. You are small-minded and inward-focused. This is not how Jesus was. In the book, When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself, the author Steve Corbett refers to white evangelicals historically not having the best track record when it comes to racial reconciliation and to economically reaching out to the poor and development. And he says this, in his book, will the message of churches to the poor again be not in my backyard as they load the pews into moving vans and relocate even farther away from those for whom Jesus cares so deeply? Or will suburban evangelical churches embrace the ministry opportunities that are landing on their doorsteps as poor people from every tongue, tribe, and nation move in across the street? Will they say as the early church did, yes, in my backyard? Folks, if Jesus loved the unlovable, and he loved them right where they were, shouldn't we? It says that Jesus was going 
he was going to all the cities and villages of Galilee. So the first part of the Great Commission is, therefore, what? Go. Go and make disciples. And Jesus was going. He didn't just give the Great Commission. He didn't just proclaim it. He lived it. And it says that he went to how many of the villages and cities? All. What's the meaning of all? All. (laughs) He went to all the villages and cities because he was so passionate for people. And he wanted to get them the gospel truth. And so he went all over Galilee to the villages and the cities everywhere there. And what was he doing? It says that he was teaching in their synagogues first. Well, why? Why start at the Jewish synagogues where they supposedly already knew and worshipped God? Well, Jesus was Jewish himself. And the Jewish people historically and biblically were the chosen people of God to reveal himself to the world. And the synagogues were the social and religious epicenters of each town. But also, I think, moreover, Jesus went there because they did not truly know God like they thought they did. They did not have the full picture of gospel truth, and so Jesus went there first. Often you will find many lost people in the church. Some in here today probably don't know Christ. And if you were to die today, you would not spend eternity with our Lord in heaven. Church attendance does not and cannot and will not save you. Bill Bright, who is the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, or CREW, says that their survey suggests that over 50% of the people in churches in the U.S. are not sure of their salvation. That means over half. Over half of American churchgoers are not even sure if they're saved. Now, hopefully that's not true in here, but it's likely that maybe that is true with some of you. The Barna Research Group revealed that 44% of Americans are nominal Christians. That means Christian by name only, Christian by label only, not by belief, not by lifestyle, not living it out. And these 142 million People describe themselves as Christians, but they do not believe that their hope for eternal life is based on a personal relationship with Jesus by faith, the belief that he died and rose again from the dead. They're essentially lost. They're playing church. And many believe that they are saved even if Jesus has never made a change in their lives. I had a pastor in Texas that I served under, and he said, he, he was like king of cheesy quotes. <laughs> and he always said this, If there's no change, then something's strange. Cheesy, but true. If there's no change, there's something strange. If if Jesus has never made a change in your life, maybe you need to evaluate your life. And so Jesus taught in the synagogues to correct their misassumptions of salvation. But also it says he went proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus went out telling the good news about himself through himself. We see this in Luke chapter 4, if you want to briefly turn there. Luke chapter 4, we kind of see a glimpse of this. Verse 16, let me kind of summarize it. It says that Jesus came to Nazareth, which was his hometown, and as was his custom, meaning Jesus constantly went to the synagogues, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The Shabbat, so the Sabbath day, he goes to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, and he begins to read. Let me explain. In 
Jewish traditions in, in the synagogues, they would have a weekly public reading of the Tanakh or the, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we now know as the Old Testament. And so they would read a large pericope, a large passage of the, of the, the Scriptures. And they would usually have a traveling rabbi or someone of high honor doing that. And so they asked Jesus to do that. And he stands up to read the scroll. He unrolls the scroll. And he's reading from Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. And he rolls up the scroll, and he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And it says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fixed on him. And as they're all looking at him, then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, in context, maybe we don't understand how awkward and crazy this would have been. He was supposed to read a large passage, probably several chapters, and he stops after the equivalent of basically two verses. Imagine if Pastor Dan came up to preach one Sunday and he reads the text he's about to preach, closes up his Bible, and then just goes to sit down. It would be a little, there'd be awkward silence, I promise you that. Everyone would be, the worship people would be looking at it like, are we supposed to go up? I mean, you all would be like, is he not going to preach? Jesus read these words and then stopped. And then he says, today, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, by me. Jesus is saying, listen to me, Jesus is saying that he is the good news of this passage. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom because he is the good news. If I were to do a survey or a poll of the U.S. church, of the average churchgoer in America about the gospel, and if I ask them to articulate the good news of Jesus, statistically, at least half would get it wrong or not be able to do so. The gospel is this. God created us to know him and walk with him closely. When God created mankind, he said, it is, it is what? Good. It is good. So things were good between humanity and God, but God was not good enough for us. And so we rejected him for something better. We rejected worship of God. That means holding him in highest worth, highest preeminence to worship other things or other people or other stuff and hold them in highest regard. We call that sin. And sin is spiritual mutiny. It's spiritual rebellion against our most high, perfect God. We are all sinners. We've all rejected God, even though we were created to worship Him. And sin separates us from our holy God. Because He is holy. He is set apart. He is so perfect. He's in a category in and of Himself. He can't even be around sin. Can't even be around people who do sin. And so sin separates us from the holy God. But God is also just. He's the definition of justice. Meaning that sin cannot go unpunished. He cannot just, you know, allow us to sin and do nothing about it. That would cease to uphold justice. And so he did the only thing he knew to do. And he sent his son to live a perfect life. To die a death that we could never die. 
in our place as a perfect sacrificial substitute on the cross in our place for our sins. And Jesus was buried, dead for three days, but rose from the dead, which set us free from death and gave us victory over sin and proves that he is God. And it is by faith in Jesus, not by works, not by anything we do, not by religion, not by being a good person, not by labels. It is by faith in Jesus, turning from our sin, that we call that repentance, and turning to God in faith. It is by faith in Jesus that we are saved, and Jesus is coming back. Yeah, okay, we can do better than that. Jesus is coming back. There you go. See, we forget that that's part of the gospel. That's part of the good news, that Jesus didn't just leave us here. He's coming back. And the gospel is the only thing that will change people eternally. So what should we do? We should pray for opportunities to tell others about Jesus and how Jesus has changed us. Jesus went teaching in the synagogues. He went proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, but also it says he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of affliction. If you look at Matthew chapter 9 again, just look at the headings of the chapters. If, you're, if your Bible has headings, it, it says that in the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. It says later on, Jesus healed a woman who was bleeding for 12 years. It says that Jesus restored a girl to life. Jesus heals two blind men. Jesus heals a man unable to speak. He was constantly healing my knowledge, I don't believe there's any passage in the Gospels where Jesus actually ever refused anyone who sought out healing. He was constantly healing. And Jesus met their physical needs in conjunction with their spiritual needs, telling them the saving truth. It's gospel proclamation combined with gospel compassion, being the mouthpiece of Jesus, but also his hands and feet. Listen, if a homeless, hungry person comes up to you and asks you for food or asks you for a meal, don't just give them a Bible. Don't just say, well, be well fed. Hope you get a meal tonight. Hope you, hope you uh, find some warmth in this below zero weather. Scripture literally says don't do that because some people cannot hear the gospel over the rumbling of their own stomach. Moreover, many desire a friendly conversation more than just a handout. True poverty is not at root, a lack of resources, it is deeply broken relationships. And proclamation of the gospel and demonstration of Christ's love must go hand in hand. And so if Jesus showed love and proclaimed truth to people, shouldn't we? So number one, to reach the lost, proclaim and live the good news of Jesus. Verse 36 when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without someone to guide and direct them will just wander about aimlessly in the field. And they'll start to wander away and they will inevitably stumble into trouble and be overtaken by predators who want nothing but to kill them. And Jesus is saying that he looked, or Matthew is saying that Jesus looked upon the people and they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were just helpless and hopeless, without hope, without purpose, and they would not last long. In fact, literally the words used here in the Greek for harassed and helpless is 
dejected and thrown down. It's this action like, imagine if someone is grabbing at your pant leg, begging you, and you toss them aside and throw them down. That's the action given in this verb here. We might say kick to the curb. Do you remember the movie Titanic? Came out 20, 20 years, do you realize that was 20 years ago? Man, does that make you feel old? By the way, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, the ship sinks. Sorry to ruin it for you. But there's this chilling, haunting scene at the end of the movie where people are just, the, the ship is sinking and they're trying to find life rafts and they're trying to find driftwood and they're just trying to find something to which they can grab onto, cling onto for their lives as they're treading water and as they're thrashing about. And there would be people who was on a piece of driftwood and someone would come up, try to get on the same driftwood and they would kick them off, they'd push them off or they would be packed into a life raft and one person would try to come on a life raft and they'd push them away. So many in our world are just floating along in life with nothing to cling to, and they are drowning. And our world does not offer hope. Our world just kicks them down, kicks them to the curb, so they are helpless, hopeless, harassed, dejected, and thrown down. People are hurting, and they need the hope of the gospel. They need Jesus, and they don't even realize it. Sometimes, when I'm at an international airport, I like to people watch. You guys ever people watch? By the way, in the first service, I was telling this story, and I said, I like to watch people. <laughs> and Emerson came up to me after the service. He's like, dude, really good sermon, but you may not want to say watch people, because that kind of sounds creepy. Uh, let's, let's just flip those words around. Let's say people watch. Because people, you know, people, people watch. Oh, people watch. I do that. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so I like going to an airport and people watching because you have all these hundreds of cultures and people groups and languages converging on one spot from all over the world. And it's just cool to see people interact. Well, Brandon Heath, who is uh, a well-known worship artist, You've probably heard him on the radio, several songs on Christian radio. He was at an airport one day, and he sees a woman of a different culture, I, I believe speaking a different language, and she was in deep need. She was begging people, and he saw her, he saw that he could help, but he did nothing about it because he wanted to get to his gate early, make sure he got a good seat so he can put up his you know, bag and overhead compartment, and so he didn't help her. The whole flight, he was just plagued by that. He was so convicted. There was this woman in need, and I did nothing. I have the love and truth of Christ, and I did nothing. And so he penned the words of this song, which is essentially a prayer called, Give Me Your Eyes. And the lyrics go like this, Give me your eyes for just one second. Lord, give me your eyes so I can see everything that I keep missing. Give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. When Jesus saw people, what did he see? What did he experience? When Jesus saw people, he had compassion. And many times, Jesus looked upon a crowd and had compassion. We see this in Matthew 15, verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. 
And what does he do? He takes a few fish and loaves and he feeds 4,000 men plus women and children. In Matthew 20, Jesus is moved with compassion and heals two blind men. Mark chapter 1, he is moved with compassion and heals a leper. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus tries to find a secluded place so he can mourn the loss of his good friend and cousin, John the Baptist, who was just beheaded. He just wants to to weep and sorrow and mourn and spend time with the Father. And yet, when he tries to find a secluded place, he sees people approaching him. He sees this large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, it says. And he begins to teach them many things. And shortly after that, he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. Jesus showed compassion. And compassion and sympathy are not the same thing. Sympathy is a great thing. Listen, if you know someone who has a loved one who passes away, you know, what do we say? We say, well, my sympathies to you. I'm sorry for your loss. That's, that's good. Sympathy is an emotional, empathetic feeling you feel towards those who are in sorrow and broken. But it's not the same thing as compassion. Sympathy does not always necessitate action. Compassion does. Compassion does not sit back and do nothing. Compassion springs into action. I mean, what kind of shepherd would see scattered sheep all over a field and go, ah, they're fine. <laughs> They'll figure it out. They'll come back to me eventually. No. And Jesus is the good shepherd. And Jesus had deep compassion for people then. He has deep compassion for people now. I mean, you, you think the Lord wants people to remain in their brokenness? No. He wants them to have hope, peace, love. Grace, contentment, righteousness, restoration, and wholeness in Him. And so out of that compassion Jesus had for people, He did something about it. And if Jesus showed compassion to broken people, shouldn't we? Number two, to reach the lost, we must show compassion. Finally, verse 37 And Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Very often I've heard this text read as the harvest is ripe, but that's not the word Jesus uses here. In the Greek, Jesus uses a word that means great, extensive, vast, meaning there is so much lostness in our world. So much lostness, it may seem daunting and overwhelming, and dare I say, intimidating. The need is great. And there are literally millions of people waiting to hear the gospel, so who will tell them? As of now, there are at least 6,000 unreached people groups in the world today. Six, that's Unacceptable. Today in our society of technology and social media and transportation, still there are 6,000, over 6,000 unreached people groups. And evangelical Christians comprise about 4%, probably less than 4% of the total population of the world. So gospel-centered evangelical Christians are less than 4% of our world. Now, I realize that Christianity is the largest religion, but a large chunk of that, you have uh, Catholicism, you have mainline Protestantism, uh, in fact, they include in that statistic Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. And so, essentially, when you dig down, 
It's 4% or less of our total population. Almost 3 billion people, listen to this one, almost 3 billion people have never heard the name of Jesus. Never heard the gospel, have no idea about the Jesus of the Bible. And if you hear these things and it doesn't break your heart, something is wrong with your heart. There are 7.6 billion people in our world, and many areas have little or no gospel witness. It is said that there are right now 2,934 people groups without any Christian witness or any church at all. So yeah, the field is great. It is vast. It is extensive. But it is also ripe. People do want badly to know the truth, but they have no one to tell them. I believe that more than ever in history, right now, people are eagerly wanting truth. There's an eagerness of people to hear the gospel. And I believe that's because they see the brokenness in our world. Do you realize this, this weekend in Egypt, there was another church shooting? I believe like nine or ten Christians died at a, at a Coptic church. I read that on a Yahoo News headline, and I, you know, I read it, and I was broken. And that, that angered me, and that sorrowed me saddened me, but shortly after, you know, I moved on. Because how commonplace are shootings nowadays, and bombings, and wars, and battles in our world? It's so commonplace that we're desensitized to it. And I think people in our world see the brokenness in our world, and they're thinking, this can't be it. This can't be all there is. There must be another way. And there is, Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach without being sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the gospel. So the need is great. And more workers or disciple-makers of Jesus are needed. Folks, that's you and that's me. If you are a follower of Christ in here today, you are to be a worker of the harvest. And God does not really have to use us to spread His saving gospel. He could write it in the sky. He can imprint it on people's hearts. And yet, this is how God chooses to do that. We are the means through which God chooses to proclaim His gospel truth. That's how he has chosen to proclaim the good news. He chose us, chose to use us as imperfect, broken vessels as we are, but vessels of his truth. And notice that Jesus does not say the harvest is plentiful. So let's go reap. That happens in the next chapter, chapter 10. Jesus sends them out to go reap, but not in in chapter 9. He says, what? Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. The Greek word here is the word deomai that's used here. It does not simply mean to pray, but it means a much stronger meaning to to beg, to implore, to ask pleadingly, to pray earnestly and urgently. It's a sense of like almost grabbing the Lord by his ankles and saying, please, would you do something about this? Please, begging the Lord. And if you understand the lostness in our world, and if you have compassion, you will pray passionately for those without Jesus. 
especially, especially if we understand the power of prayer. God moves as his people pray. He doesn't have to operate this way, but he does. He enacts his will through the prayers of his people. And so what are we to do? We are to pray specifically for more disciple makers to make disciples of Jesus. And if Jesus prayed earnestly for disciple makers, then shouldn't we? Number three, to reach the lost, we must pray earnestly. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose.